You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's International Fight Week. Woo! Can you feel the excitement? Yeah, I can. Red, white, and fight. Isn't that what the, what was the... I think it was red, white, and fight week. Just, red, white, and fight week, yeah, yes. Just comes tripping off the tongue. Boy, they kind of screwed that up. What's Is there not a, a cool slogan for this one? Maybe uh, after the first time around, they decided just to go sans slogan for this one. The same way they used to name all the events and it'd be like, bitter rivals. And then now it's just like, 214, man. It's the one that comes after 213. Tried to name them after the cities they were in for a while. Now it's just UFC Fight Night Lee versus Kiesa. I can see how fired up you are. No, I'm ready to go, man. International yeah. Fight Week. Got a lot to talk about this week. Going to be a very UFC-centric show this week, as you might guess, with uh, two events, back-to-back events. Well, I mean, I think, what did we spend, like two rounds talking about Bellator just recently? We talk about too much Bellator, people are going to lose their damn minds. People just whispering about us. <laughs> people will talk. We got music again this week from our colleague in the MMA media, Eric Fontanez. You can find his writing over at bloodyelbow.com. And if you like what you hear, you can find more from him at uh, soundcloud.com slash Eric Fontanez. Programming note, you're going to love this. I can, I can see you over there licking your chops for this one. Next week's CME will be delayed by one day. It will come out on Tuesday. Because? I'm going to be out of town. Just globetrotting. That's what you're doing. Three rounds as Back usual this week in the co-main event series podcast. Series of BRBO cabins. I feel like I got off pretty easy with that one. Uh, in round number one, if the idea of undefeated former champion Justin Gaethje preparing to make his UFC debut doesn't make you feel excited and a little bit nervous all at the same time, refresh your podcast feed, man. You're listening to the wrong show. And in round number two, we'll wipe the crusty tears of the loss of Donald Cerrone versus Robbie Lawler out of our eyes and realize we still have Bobby Knuckles versus the Cuban Cookie Monster. And in round number three, Valentina Shevchenko goes out and tries to get another little bullet tattooed on her stomach this weekend when she fights Amanda Nunes for the women's bantamweight title. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me? Just saying stuff. And we're going to check in with Sir Nigel Longstock. He's going to stop by so we can play a little bit, master, little bit of Master Tweet Theater. But first like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Darth Maul. Okay. Which uh, English football club do you think Darth Maul plays for? Lord of the Sith, right? From the original or from the uh, the prequels. No, I know. I know what it is. Thanks, is, though. Is that how you spell it? I think it is. Well, like to maul someone? Yeah. Okay. Do you get it? It's kind of scary. Yeah, no, I'm I'm terrified. They didn't do a whole lot of subtlety with the Star Wars character names. (laughs) No, no, they did not. Uh, Darth Maul writes, since there wasn't shit going on, did y'all fellas watch John Fitch wrestling in the rain in the middle of a racetrack this past weekend? Cool or not cool? I did catch that. So this was the the inaugural Professional Fighters League event? Is that that what we're doing here? Sure. At the Daytona Speedway? The organization formerly known as World Series of Fighting. 
out there on the infield uh, at the Daytona International Speedway. And I, also, I don't know about you, I just barely caught this one. I did too. I like uh, I have the Sling TV now, and I didn't. I wasn't sure if I got NBC Sports Network, which is this is a recurring pattern in my life. Every time I get some kind of new television, uh, at some point, without me reckoning on it or planning for it, I end up being like, "Do I get NBC Sports Network?" And then I go check for it, and it turns out I do. Turned it on just as uh, John Fitch and Brian Foster were in the cage getting ready to do the damn thing. Uh, so I watched that, which, I don't know, I thought it was kind of a, a decent fight right well, there. I almost missed it because I actually just barely remembered that it was even happening and then set my DVR to record. Uh, and I don't know if you know this, but they, because of like rain delaying the actual race, they moved up the start of the fighting portion of the evening so that if you had just had the DVR set and you didn't actually check on your TV at the time, you probably would have missed it. Well, And that's kind of a bullshit move, right? It is. For all the people that have their DVR set. Which is... I mean, for, for fight fans there in attendance, it was probably awesome. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, yeah. Except for everything else that was going on, it was probably awesome. Yeah. I'm standing around in the rain to, to watch John Fitch versus Brian Foster. I don't know if that's necessarily anything you want to be doing, but okay. Um, and John Fitch goes out there, doesn't, it doesn't look like it's always going his way in this fight, but then he snatches that choke, does a very awkward dance that basically proves that much like you assumed John Fitch ain't no dancer. And, uh, there you have it. The professional fighters league is now a thing. This was John Fitch's first stoppage victory since June 12th, 2007 at UFC fight night, Stout versus Fisher. Wow. Where he got a uh, rear naked choke, second round, on uh, Hone Carnero. Is that how you say it? Hone Carnero? It, yeah. yeah. So wow. That's uh... What do you... Okay, so now that we have this Professional Fighters League thing, um, you know, and you're out there at on the racetrack, that's kind of a, a little bit of a wrinkle, something new. I saw an email from the Professional Fighters League talking about how they were reimagining the sport of MMA, which usually... When I start hearing words like that being thrown around, that's what makes me wonder if you're circling the drain because reimagining stuff is just kind of marketing buzz talk for desperation clinging to whatever we can. It's interesting that their reimagination of the sport looks almost exactly like the sport before. Yeah, I was exp I was tuning in being like, okay, so what are we like? Are we going to be fighting but on horseback? Is that what we're going to do now? There's going to be weapons stashed all over the cage. I see. You, you, uh, a guy tries to take you down. You sprawl out of it, pull up uh, a bundle of straw, and underneath there's a mace lying <laughs> there, down there. Now that would be a reimagining of the sport. I would watch that and I would say to myself, someone done reimagined this sport. So the Professional Fighters League reimagining of mixed martial arts just looks like kind of a low-budget version of mixed martial arts only at a racetrack yeah it's like a king of the cage event basically okay yeah um so yeah so there we are we just gonna kind of soldier forth and all be like okay it's the professional fighters league now it's just the it's the same exact thing as world series of fighting basically uh same guys and everything are we supposed to be looking at this completely differently now i mean i know they have the whole new like system in place and all that but Still feels exactly the same to me. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll be somewhat interesting to see what, if anything, the Professional Fighters League can do to make waves for itself. Uh, what are they starting this year? 2017, 2018. Uh, 
And like, frankly, if the Professional Fighters League continues to be viewed at the level that the World Series of Fighting was viewed, that sounds kind of like a win to me, doesn't it? In a weird way? Maybe. They are definitely reimagining some start times so far, so that could be a problem. Yeah, you want to you want those to start at the at the posted time, right? I mean, yeah, you can as we've seen in MMA, you can run way over your posted time. You start way before your posted time. It's tough to get the word out. Next question this week comes to us from Devin Scott. He writes, as noted in this week's Breakfast of Champions, Dana White has apathetically agreed to Demetrius Johnson's bout with Ray Borg. I think if Dana White still named event cards, his first pick would be Chump Change. Oh, given his enthusiasm. What are the odds you see two mentions of the days when the UFC named cards? I actually like Chump Change. That's not bad. UFC 215 Chump Change. If you're Ray Borg, how do you take this criticism about your value? Lastly, have you heard any credible rumblings of the UFC trying to sell the men's 125-pound division? This uh, this actually is a good point, Ben, right? If you're Ray Borg yeah. and you're at home, uh, you're probably, like, mystified, right? Because the only thing you've done is whatever they asked you to, right? right? And this, this may very well be the second time in recent memory that you've gotten the call to get ready for Demetrius Johnson. Yeah. Well, and that's somebody made that point to me on Twitter after this was all happening and saying, you know, if Ray Borg has to be hearing Dana White go, oh, yeah, sure, great, fine, we'll give you Ray Borg. I'm sure the fans will be going nuts and ticket sales will be through the roof. Pay-per-view sales will be uh, absolutely nuts. Great, good job. And Ray Borg is going, wait, why, what did I do? Why, why, why are you being a dick to me? I'm just over here keeping my head down, working, plowing forward, man, trying to trying to win some fights. Uh, and he gets lumped in with this, like he gets kind of painted as the the weird consolation prize for Demetrius Johnson. And already Dana White is washing his hands of the whole thing. I don't really see, to me, like we talked about a little bit in the Breakfast of Champions. You ask yourself, why would Dana White do this? Like this is a card that you're promoting. It's your event. You are the one who is in the business of making money off these things. Why would you go out of your way to tell us that this one sucks and that you don't think anybody will pay for it and maybe that you don't think anybody should pay for it? Uh, I mean, you're doing it because you're mad at Demetrius Johnson, and this kind of sends a signal of what happens if you defy the bosses. But you're also unwittingly hurting your own product there because – Ray Borg is one of your fighters. You've now you've you've painted him as a guy nobody cares about, which doesn't really give him much of a chance. Uh, I mean, what if he becomes a champion going forward? Uh, you've already told us that nobody cares about Ray Borg, so I, I don't see how you could think that the upside of just throwing your weight around and reminding everybody that you can do that is worth the downside here. Yeah, and if you're Ray Borg, like a lot of guys in this sport, clearly you are forging ahead in your MMA career. Uh, focusing on the positives, like thinking that right around the corner you beat Demetrius Johnson, become the flyweight champion. You're 23 years old. You're five and two in the UFC, though you have uh, missed weight twice. Uh, the, if you hear the boss <laughs> say this kind of stuff about you, like, oh yeah, Ray Borg, Borg I'm sure it, that's going to put a lot of butts in seats, right? Aren't you just kind of like, what am I even doing this for? <laughs> yes. like, uh, what's the what's the ceiling for me here? Even if I do win the flyweight title, like if this is They've already, they were already recently talking about shutting the flyweight division down. Like if you're Ray Borg, let's say you do shock the world and go out there and beat Demetrius Johnson. Uh, this can't like be seen as a, like a pat on the back or like no. a, a confidence builder to, to have Dana White say this, this stuff about you. Let's, let's talk about the second part here of, of Devin Scott's question. Uh, the UFC has ca- idly mentioned shutting down the flyweight division. 
I believe as a negotiating tactic when they were trying to talk Demetrius Johnson into taking that fight with TJ Dillashaw. Uh, I, for one, I can't really imagine it actually happening. Like I know that the UFC essentially did walk away from the lightweight division for a couple of years there back in the, in the, um, the mid two thousands, but like th- that would be a, a, a draconian, like just pulling the kill switch on the thing. It's hard to imagine that going down in today's climate, kind of, to me. Yeah, it would seem like a troubling sign, I think, was how a lot of people would interpret it. The thing that's really baffling to me about this whole situation is the continued insistence from Dana White that, like, it's insane for Demetrius Johnson to turn down T.J. Dillashaw. And the way he keeps mentioning it, like, T.J. Dillashaw, a former champion, coming down from Bantamweight. First of all, T.J. Dillashaw has never done huge numbers on pay-per-view. He was in, he was headlining, like, two pay-per-views, and I think the... The highest selling one was like 215,000 buys, uh, which is not too far off from some of the ones that Demetrius Johnson has done. So it's not like, you know, he's turning down a chance of a, a guy who brings in a million pay-per-view buys every time he steps on the mat. And also it's, it's not that logical a fight the way Dana White keeps suggesting that it is. I mean, Cody Garbrandt versus Demetrius Johnson. Yeah, there you go. Champion versus champion. We love that shit in this sport. We never get tired of talking about it. Uh, and Demetrius Johnson had said that he would do that fight. If Cody Garbrandt could come down to flyweight, but then when he's not available and you take, okay, well, this guy was going to fight Cody Garbrandt. So he's just as good. He's not, he's not the champion. Uh, it doesn't, it just doesn't make as much sense. And to act like Demetrius Johnson is the one who is utterly insane for wanting some financial guarantees before he would fight a guy who has never proven that he can make flyweight. That seems like a reasonable position to me. And it's, that's the kind of frustrating thing about it is to see that painted as somehow unreasonable yeah and it's frustrating to see also like people that there are still people that will just parrot that that uh line of reasoning right you see people on twitter and people in the comments basically saying you know demetrius johnson turns down fights fuck him sometimes uh and it doesn't seem like that's what reality is because it seemed to me that demetrius johnson like would have gone forward with fighting tj dillashaw or cody garbrandt in the future he just wanted to say look uh, it makes more sense to me to set the the, the record for uh, consecutive title defenses against somebody, the number one contender in my division. And if you do want me to fight TJ Dillashaw, like you just said, I'll do it. But I want some additional compensation, like just in case he misses weight, et cetera, et cetera. And, and if you're so sure he's going to make weight, why wouldn't you offer him those guarantees? Right. And then, then Demetrius Johnson says, and after I win that, you know, after I win this next fight, then I would gladly fight Cody Garbrandt or whoever. So it doesn't seem to me like a case of a guy turning down fights. And even if he had turned down fights, uh, I wouldn't be that mad at him. It just seemed to me like uh, he had already agreed to the thing that the UFC wanted him to do. And then the UFC changed its mind about what it wanted him to do. And then he asked for a little bit more compensation, which is, is if you're the champion and you've been as consistent as Demetrius Johnson has been, uh, you know, the whole time he's been a 125 pound champion, I don't really think it's that outlandish. So once again, you got a situation where uh, you cross the boss and all of a sudden you're not the number one pound for pound fighter in the world anymore. And they're going to like turn around and put your whole entire division out on the used car lot and sell it to Scott Coker if he's driving by and has enough money in his pocket. Not to mention, as Demetrius Johnson pointed out in that open letter thing that he wrote, uh, it doesn't do you that much good to have the UFC give you a cut of the pay-per-views if they're not going to promote the fight enough to where the pay-per-views reach the level where you start getting some some money and it, 
significant money. And this kind of proves that point. Dana White going out there and saying, sure, okay, fine, we'll do this fight. And no one's going to care, whatever, go ahead. Uh, you just did the exact thing that he was worried about you doing. So you can't say that his concerns were not valid. Next question this week comes to us from Joseph Caldwell. He writes, I can't be the only one worried about Junior Dos Santos' next fight versus the freaky Frenchman. Uh, he's taking some serious damage in the past, so surely more time between fights is required? Question mark. This fight's uh, tiptoeing into uneasy town for me. Veteran fighters don't need to be ping-ponged around the octagon every few months. It's time for the sport and its fighters to start getting smarter. Fight result, Mr. Nganu by murder. So, Ben, obviously, uh, in the interim between coming event podcast episodes here, the UFC has announced Junior Dos Santos against uh, Francis Ngannou. I believe it was, this one's going to be in Edmonton, or where is this one? It's north of, oh, it's at uh, Rogers Center, right? Uh, yeah, it's the UFC 215 in September in, yeah. in Edmonton. Which is, frankly, the, the kind of fight we thought that Francis Ngannou was going to get. Uh, it seemed like he's clearly being groomed to challenge for the heavyweight title. Obviously, former champion Junior Dos Santos. Uh, it'll be a, a step up in competition for Ngannou with the kind of thing where if he wins it, then you can justify putting him in there with Stipe Miocic or at the very least putting him into some kind of number one contender fight if this doesn't already qualify as that. Uh, are you concerned about Junior Dos Santos here making a quick turnaround? Uh, you know, about as concerned as we should always be about somebody who got knocked out then turning around and fighting again four months later, especially in the heavyweight division where that no matter who you're fighting, that is always a possibility that you're going to get knocked out. That's why it's tough because I understand, you know, the, the statement about we're getting into uneasy town here when you start to think about it to think, yeah, he might end up going in there and taking two knockout losses in four months time. That's not a great thing for your brain. And yet if you're in the heavyweight division, this is kind of the business you're in. I, I mean, I, I can understand saying that you might want to see him take a little longer layoff, um, but it's the kind of uneasy we should probably feel just in general a lot of the time in this sport, don't you think? Yeah, you're probably right about that. Uh, if you're Junior Dos Santos, also, here's your fight against Francis Ngannou, the first fight since uh, Ngannou moves to the United States, kind of making a lot of changes to his training. Uh, almost feels like after 11 fights and a 10-1 and record, uh, and five wins in the UFC, he's going to get serious about this stuff now. So it's it's unknown, you know, if we're going to see a much better Francis Ngannou if all of these changes will uh, will manifest themselves in, in what we see out of him in the cage or if he'll just be kind of the same guy or if it won't work and will backfire on him somehow. But if you're Junior Dos Santos, maybe that uh, creates more unknowns heading into this fight and, uh, you know, makes it difficult for you to prepare for Francis Ngannou a little bit. Uh, and a fight where he, Francis Ngannou is probably going to be the betting favorite, I would think, if when the odds come out. Well, everything about this fight seems like it's set up to do the thing we love to do in combat sports, where we feed the old guy to the new guy. Uh, and we think one guy's on his way down, but still has, you know, you could say he's a former champion, uh, was just fighting for the title, and then you use him as kind of a trampoline that the the next up-and-coming contender can, can jump off of. Uh, that's at least how this how the thought process here feels to me. Yeah, I think you're right on. And it seems like the UFC is pretty excited about Francis Ngannou. Just Why wouldn't the, you be? I'm you know, excited about Francis yeah, Ngannou. I mean, I think, I think we all Frenchman. are. The freaky Frenchman. I think we all are. It just, uh, you know, the UFC doesn't, doesn't come out and talk about everybody the way that Dana White and others have talked about Francis Ngannou as a potential future champion, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems like the promotional machine is 
at least somewhat behind Francis Ngannou at this point. And uh, now that he's, especially now that he's living in Las Vegas, I bet that we are, we will see more from him from a promotional push standpoint than we have already. I am gladly in gonna watch it. Huh? No, nope. Come on. Nope. Next question this week comes to us from Steve K. He writes, what's the deal with the UFC adding Damian Maya versus Tyron Woodley only a month before UFC 214? Nearly all the tickets have already been sold. So it's not like adding this fight will boost the gate. I also don't think it does much for pay-per-view sales. Is the addition because the UFC thinks John Jones and or DC won't make it to UFC 214? Or maybe this fight was supposed to be on the now canceled August card. Please discourse. Uh... You know, if the UFC was stacking the deck here a little bit in case of a John Jones-related emergency, I don't think you could really blame them. Uh, and they did, in fact, as Steve K mentions here, uh, cancel that August pay-per-view to get out of the way of uh, Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather. So, uh, yeah, they, you know, they, any of those things could have been a reason here for the kind of, I don't want to call it last minute, but maybe a little bit tardy booking of Damian Maia versus Tyron Woodley. Uh, and you also had the like George St. Pierre thing happening so that a lot of people, you know, they might have been trying to uh, figure out what to do with him and, and, and when to do it and, and who would be the number one contender at 170 pounds. So, um, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me to add it at this juncture. I don't know if the uh, if the fighters feel differently, but uh, I know this is a fight you're going to be excited about and a fight that uh, all the grappling enthusiasts out there will be excited about. So uh, it's hard for me to to put a damper on that frankly i'm just excited that we're going to get to see this fight yeah and i don't i mean if you look at ufc 214 you see uh, an event headlined by john jones who the ufc just recently was saying would never they can never feel comfortable headlining a, a event with him again and you also got cyborg on that fight card she's already on her second opponent for this one uh so I can see how the UFC might have felt like neither one of those existing title fights that you have there are 100% solid. Something could happen to either one of them. And having a, an extra one there to serve as a backup just seems smart to me. Last question this week comes to us from Matt Webb, who writes, The sport of MMA is starting to take a strange turn. The sport has seen growth yearly since I became a diehard fan 12 years ago. With the selling of the UFC... Uh, the viewership on FS1 declining and the biggest star in our sport going to play touch butt in a different sport uh, for shit tons of cash. I asked this question, is this shit going to last? The obsession with making stars and super fights has seemed to cheapen the holiness of the fucking amazing thing we call MMA. Lastly, it seems like the sport is on a crash course to doomsday. So much uncertainty. The UFC pimping out its biggest star seems more of a cry for help to me than anything. Is our sport an actual sport or is it just a 25 year fad that our grandkids will be flabbergasted at discourse and please do be gentle. Well, I think for one, there's a lot of different questions in here. For one thing, is our sport an actual sport? No, not really. I mean, the competitions are a sport, but as we've seen in the way the mechanics of the sport works, not the way sports usually go. This is a different thing. It's, this is a little more carnival, which is what the combat sports always are. But I think a good, Example of look at is boxing. That how many times in last you know in recent decades have we heard boxing is dead, uh, and now boxing is having a little bit of a moment. Boxing is having a, a resurgence, and I think we could expect to see the same thing with mixed martial arts, since it's so individual driven and so star driven that there are going to be down times where it seems like you know not much is really happening and only the really hardcores are still paying attention. And then there are going to be times when somebody comes along that really reaches outside of that, captures other people's attention, and it feels like it's on the rise again. I think you should expect those kind of 
dips and, and climbs, but I don't think that that's a sign that it's going away. I mean, I think in 25 years from now, um, I think mixed martial arts will probably still be a thing. I, I don't know exactly what it'll look like and, and who will be the driving uh, brand in that, but I, I, I don't think that we should be too concerned right now the way we had reason to be concerned you know, in like 2001 that the sport could just go away at any time. Yeah, mixed martial arts itself has been around for a, for a long time, right? Under one name or another, it's it's basically been going on the the entire time since the the Pencration days. Uh, it just so happens that it came to America in 1993, and now we call it mixed martial arts, and the flagship brand is the UFC. So I think as long as there are martial artists practicing different disciplines, I think you're going to have the natural human curiosity uh, driving people to. Uh, try to figure out whose cuisine reigns supreme, uh, as they say on on uh, Iron Chef. Uh, I'll take your word for it. That that's what they say. Come on, don't sit over there and act like you've never watched Iron Chef. That's exactly what I'm going to do. All right. Uh, I will say this thing, though. Uh, I've never – it's been a long time since I have been less uh, certain about the future of the UFC itself because – you know, back when Frank and Lorenzo Fertitta were running the thing and it was kind of a, a labor of love and a passion project for them, even though obviously they did a lot of stuff that we disagreed with and, and you know, kept the lion's share of the profits for themselves, it still felt like they were going to kind of stick it out in this thing uh, as long as they possibly could. Uh, you know, this may be just a blip on the radar of the UFC, the current uh, downturn that we're experiencing right now to begin 2017, which is stretched all the way to the middle of the year. But at the same time, with WME IMG in charge of it, you get a much uh, you get the, the much starker impression of this being an investment property than you really that, or at least I really have ever before. And and you know, if if one day they were like, this thing isn't making the kind of returns that we thought it would, and we are either going to sell it or just shut it down, I can't say that I would be. Uh, you know, a hundred percent shocked by that anymore. I think that it's probably a, all hysteria and that the brand will come out of it fine uh, at some point. But at the same time, like the longer this sort of slump stretches on, the more you start to wonder if WMEIMG is, is going to ever make that money back uh, that it paid for it. And, and if it, if it becomes clear that it's you know going to take much longer than it thought to make good on the investment, what, what are they going to do about that? Uh, and that's a question that we just don't know the answer to at this point. So, you know, even though there's been a shakeup and the top level brand appears a little bit directionless right now, I, my personal opinion is that uh, it would take a lot for MMA itself to go away. I mean, you're always going to have dudes fighting in a garage somewhere, which may be the the essence of the sport, yeah. where, where it was always supposed to be. Where's the garage? Let's go. I got a garage out back. I just don't want to hurt your neck, as I, you know. I appreciate that. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you've got a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can check out the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. News always breaks. Stuff always happens. It's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. Right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Well, Ben, as we mentioned at the top of the show, it's International Fight Week, and you know what that means. Back-to-back cards from the UFC to close out this week. The main event will be Saturday night when UFC 213 goes down, but the night before that, Friday, July 7th, we're going to get the Ultimate Fighter Redemption Finale featuring in its main event Michael Johnson versus the incoming former World Series of Fighting lightweight champion Justin Gaethje, uh, which I think we both agree is kind of a difficult matchup for Gaethje heading into his uh, UFC debut, but this obviously is a debut that has hardcore fans pretty excited just because of the way Justin Gaethje fights and the excitement that he brings pretty much each and every time out there. Now, Ben, as we have talked about on the podcast before, this seems to be a a recurring trend for the UFC to take a champion from another organization and hand them a person that seems like a tough matchup of styles in their first fight in the UFC and perhaps even upping the ante on that situation. Gaethje comes into this thing undefeated. 17-0, 17-0, and 0, I believe, without looking. Uh, what are the odds, do you think, Justin Gaethje wakes up Saturday morning still undefeated after this fight with Michael Johnson? You know, I like his fighting style, uh, but I also think that it poses a lot of risks for him. And it seems like, the good thing I can say about that is it seems like he knows. He knows what that trade-off is and is willingly making that trade-off. And like he even said that he expects to get knocked out at some point just because of the way he fights. And I, I admire him for embracing that aspect of it. And I, here's where I think it's kind of a weird flaw in the UFC model where the UFC needs guys like that. It needs fighters who go out there, take risks, uh, and put on exciting fights. And yet at the same time, it doesn't always have a a habit of being super forgiving of even a loss here or there. You know, you've seen like when guys complain about money and Dana White will just point their losses or you got to win them all, you know, as he told uh, somebody about Donald Cerrone. And yet you, but you want, you don't want guys going out there fighting super safe, um, fighting like they absolutely need to win them all and that they, they can't afford to take some chances. Uh, this is what makes it exciting to watch. This is why people are excited about seeing Justin Gaethje come over. It's not just because he's a good fighter or because he's undefeated. It's because they know that the kind of action that he brings. I mean, I think a guy like that, yeah, he could definitely go out there and knock out Michael Johnson. Uh, he could also find himself in round four in some trouble against a guy like Michael Johnson, who is savvy enough uh, to know what he's dealing with and to come in there ready to, to take this fight late and, and win it late. Yeah, you look at the level of competition for Justin Gaethje in his last few World Series of Fighting uh, bouts. Two of the last four were against Luis Palmino uh, and then Brian Foster, who obviously just lost to John John Fitch over the weekend in the Pro Fighters League debut, and then Luis Firmino most recently in December of 2016. So you're probably going to have a step up in competition for Justin Gaethje here, and that, to me, will be part of the most interesting uh, aspect of all this to see if that kind of devil-may-care uh, risk-taking style of Justin Gaethje can stand up against, uh, you know, the uh, the upper echelon of competition, which I think we all agree Michael Johnson certainly embodies. We all know that he belongs there. Now, it's an interesting point, though, Ben, to say, like, to 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 contemplate what the UFC should or should have done with Justin Gaethje, because, like you said, uh, he comes in undefeated. He seems like a guy who could be promotable uh, for the UFC. It seems like not only hardcore fans like him, but the UFC, you know, has has done a couple of small promotional 
turns with him since his his signing. They put him on the big screen, stuff like that. It seems like they sort of understand that. What what should we have done with Justin Gaethje here? Like, would MMA fans be okay with a different approach? Like, if Justin Gaethje came in and got four or five fights in the UFC against people that matchmakers thought he could probably knock out, would MMA fans cry foul, or would would that just serve to make Justin Gaethje into a bigger star? You know, I think this is actually a really good approach. I think it's hard for me to find too much fault with this matchmaking here because if you're bringing in a guy who's undefeated and a champ from another organization, you can't just have him be treated like just any other new signee to the UFC. People are excited about him. They want to see him in a tough fight. They also, I'm sure the UFC was thinking the same thing you mentioned, that quality of competition is a question for Justin Gaethje. So put him against somebody experienced, somebody good, but not exactly somebody at the very top of the division right now. Michael Johnson fits that bill quite nicely. I mean, the other way you go is Gaethje versus Northcutt, which not going to sit here and say hashtag wouldn't watch. Uh, but I do like that you're setting him up so that he can become a a guy in the title picture very quickly. If he goes out there and knocks out Michael Johnson, you know, and then he's he's 18 no and a champ in a former organization, then you're talking about potential title shot at any moment if you need him. Yeah, Michael Johnson uh, officially still a top five guy in that lightweight division uh, and coming off his most recent fight against Habib Nurmagomedov back in November of last year at UFC 205. He lost that one, of course, by a third round submission. Uh, but at the same time, you look at the people that he's fought. He's got the win over Dustin Poirier uh, in September. That was a knockout. And prior to that, he fought Nate Diaz and Benil Dariush. So he's fighting really tough characters out there in the 155 pound division. And so, yeah, this is a... This is a tough but good litmus test for Justin Gaethje, I think, because you're right. If he goes out and wins this, especially if he turns out the kind of fight we're accustomed to seeing from him and then gets the W over Michael Johnson, uh, you're right there in the mix as soon as we uh, figure out exactly what's going on with the lightweight division since uh, the the champ is out there about to, to fight the greatest boxer of his generation uh, in late late August and, and – uh, you know, we got Tony Ferguson hanging around, et cetera, et cetera. Well, he'll have to wait until Conor McGregor fights uh, Nurmagomedov in Russia, right? Oh, yes, yes. That, that will definitely I happen. I assume that is, is That's not next, just somebody next on the docket. Just saying stuff, no. And so uh, maybe a situation where there's going to be a little bit of a logjam at 155 pounds. But if you're Justin Gaethje, you do something exciting this weekend, uh, I got to think that that – you would be right there at the top of this list with all these other guys who are also known for turning out fairly exciting fights. And you start looking at a Tony Ferguson and Eddie Alvarez and Edson Barbosa. Uh, like we say so much about this division, there's just not a, a lot of ways you can turn with Justin Gaethje that don't seem like they would be exciting fights. Yeah. Did I ever tell you how when I first uh, met Justin Gaethje when he had first started training at the Grudge Center and I was spending a lot of time there uh, to write that that series of articles I did there and Trevor Whitman introduced me to him and was like, Hey, you know, this guy, he was a wrestler. Um, but I think he's going to be really good. And if, you know, he maybe only had like one or two pro fights at the time. And I talked to like, and Trevor showed me one of them on his laptop and it seemed to be at like a County fair. Uh, and I asked, I, you know, talking to Justin Gacy a little bit and asking him like how the transition from wrestling to MMA had gone. He was like, yeah, you know, I, I feel like I'm still trying to get used to getting punched in the face. And then you see him now. Seems like he got pretty used to it. Yeah, seems like he, that was one hurdle he was able to, able to overcome yeah. here in the professional fight. Uh, this is a quote that Brett Okamoto from ESPN 
put on his Twitter earlier today. He interviewed Justin Gaethje. He's got a story out right now with an interview with Justin Gaethje. And I feel like it gives you just a little bit of a flavor of what you get from Justin Gaethje coming into the UFC. This is his quote. He says, the most detrimental thing to me is the fact that you have to be a piece of shit for people to like you. It's crazy to me. People love the fact Chael Sonnen is saying he's undefeated. It's crazy to me that people like something like that, but don't give respect to the fighters that just put it on the line. Tim Boach just got a sweet KO. He's not going to talk shit, so it won't help him. That's unfortunate. I don't like how people are so uneducated that they need bullshit to watch a fight. You see Tony Ferguson saying he won't fight Kevin Lee because he doesn't meet his standards? Fuck him. That's a bitch move. You're at the top, and either you want to fight or you don't. I want to fight, and hopefully that registers with the UFC. Man, Justin Gaethje is woke to the game, Chad. And he's, and he's not going to mince words either. That's right. And you know what? I have a feeling that that will register with the UFC, both uh, perhaps with fans and with management, who, as we just discussed earlier, uh, are accustomed to people doing what they want, and they seem to like that. Yeah. Do you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me Here, or do you want to uh, bring Sir Nigel Longstock in? Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, then we'll bring him in the next round. Make, let Sir Nigel sit out there and sober up a little bit. Smoke a few more cowboy astronaut cigarettes right. and get ready for this thing to go down. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, Chad, uh, in a chat with MMA junkies John Morgan, UFC President Dana White, was talking about uh, this season of The Ultimate Fighter and just the, the franchise of The Ultimate Fighter in general. Here's a quote. This season was awesome. People are saying it's probably one of the best seasons ever, if not the best season ever. The Ultimate Fighter is always going to be relevant and be there. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? First of all, when you say The Ultimate Fighter is always going to be there, that feels more like a threat to me <laughs> than a promise. Also, are people saying that this is the best season ever? Many because people are saying, Ben. I must not hear those many, many people uh, talking about how it's the best season ever because I watched a little bit of it. The redemption angle got me to give it another chance. And in every way, this seems like still the same show. I mean, it has more experienced fighters this time, but it's just the exact same thing as we've all got. Even the coach's fight is already off. So that tells you just how typical this season is among the ones that we've already seen. And now you're going to tell me that people are saying it's one of the best ones ever and it's never going away and it's always going to be super relevant. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, just another sign, like I say from time to time, that the guys competing at the, in this sport – uh, the guys and the women competing in this sport are cut from a different cloth than the ad average human being. I wanted to send this special Are You Fucking Kidding Me out this week. Uh, we were all terribly sad to learn that Donald Cerrone and Robbie Lawler won't be fighting at UFC 213, but instead, we've kind of gone back and forth on this, but it sounds like now they've officially been bounced to UFC 214. Uh, when it was first reported that, that Cerrone was quote-unquote injured and out of this UFC 213 fight, he posted a video on his Instagram where it looked like he, at the moment, was hooked up to an IV. And the message that Cerrone wanted to get across to us was that he didn't want fans to think that he was injured and had backed out of a fight. It was important to him that we know, and I'm, I think I'm quoting him directly here, that he had a, quote, really, really bad infection in his blood, and that's how he couldn't fight. Are you fucking kidding me? I don't even know how you get an infection in your blood, but to me... That sounds pretty bad. So, as far as I'm concerned, Cowboy Cerrone, you are in the clear. Fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. Uh, we will be right back with round number two.
Well, Chad, I know you're psyched for this one. We all are. The CME Podcast's own Bobby Knuckles. Going to go in there against the Cuban cookie monster, the soldier of dog, Yoel Romero, in a fight that feels like it could very well be a middleweight title fight. Uh, two of among the best middleweights in the world, definitely, you can say right now. And just style-wise, this one seems like it's bound to be a crackerjack. It sure does. Uh, and you're right. This does seem like, even though it's been saddled with the interim tag at 185 pounds, uh, let's just say the Michael Bisping era at middleweight has not exactly been a picture of consistency uh, or reliability. Uh, it feels like it's been a long time since we saw that middleweight title on the line. It feels like an even longer time since you might, uh, two guys that you might consider to be like the number one and number two 185 pound guys in the world fought for the title. I think you got to go all the way back to Luke Rockhold against Chris Weidman in like 2015, uh, just because you know, Bisping won the title from Rockhold and then uh, immediately embarked on the Michael Bisping redemption tour uh, where he fought uh, Dan Henderson. And now we're sitting around trying to figure out what's going on with George St. Pierre. So you go ahead and you put an interim title on Yoel Romero or Robert Whitaker, depending on who wins this thing this weekend. But I have a feeling if we were all picking potential matchups against the actual champion, Michael Bisping, uh, I'm just going to wager that more people would probably either take Whitaker or Romero if they fought Bisping right now at 185 pounds. And above and beyond that, this is, as you said, just going to be a crackerjack of a fight. Uh, you got Yoel Romero, who's been waiting around for a title shot for a long time, and a guy who's been somewhat ticketed for stardom since about 2013 when he arrived in the UFC. And then you got kind of the new kid on the block, so to speak, in Bobby Knuckles, uh, who has been on an absolute tear, but is sort of like just punched his ticket to uh title contention with the TKO win over Jacare Souza uh, in April of this year. So it's one of those fights where I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen, uh, but I'm going to be super excited and interested in to watch it. Now, I think you could make a strong case here that Uel Romero has basically been fighting on a schedule as if he were already middleweight champ. Uh, for a couple of years now, like his his last six fights, all of which he won, obviously. But Chris Weidman, Jacques Array, Leota Machida, Tim Kennedy, Brad Tavares, and Derek Brunson—that's a tough schedule uh, to keep up if you're UL Romero, especially you know you're going out there as a 40 year old man now in UL Romero uh, out here fighting these hitters. Not going to get any bit of a break when you go in there against Bobby Knuckles. I mean, this is a, a a hard lineup of work for a guy who has yet to get a crack at the title. It sure is, and obviously all wins in that run, plus uh, four stoppages and four fight night bonuses for Yoel Romero over that over that run. So uh, I guess if you had to pick an odds-on favorite to win this fight this weekend, it's probably Yoel Romero, uh, and that is just because despite the fact that, that he doesn't have a ton of experience in mixed martial arts. He's only got 14 fights dating back to 2009, and he looked like kind of an unfinished product when he first arrived in the octagon. Uh, you take a look at what he's been able to do over the, those last few fights, the, especially the, the most recent win over Chris Weidman at UFC 205, which obviously the flying knee uh, that put Chris Weidman into the, into the black land, all types of fucking blood coming out of his head, uh, and the, the knockout over Lyoto Machida, uh, from 2015, and then, of course, a split decision over Jacare. Uh, it's hard not to like what Yoel Romero has been doing out there. Uh, and if you were going to pick a, a best 185-pound fighter in the world, regardless of who has the, 
the strap around their waist right now, I think you'd be hard-pressed to not say Lyoto Machida. Or, I'm sorry, to not say, uh, who are we talking about? Yoel Romero. That's right. If you had said Lyoto Machida, you, that would have been years ago. Yes. But when you be strange to say it now. Living high on the hog during the Machida era. The short-lived Machida era. Good times, though. I remember them well. Uh, do you think now, if, is this going to be uh, Bobby Knuckles' moment? Because the kind of meteoric rise we've seen, like we talked about UR Romero kind of be on this steady streak of just going in there and cracking skulls against some of the best in the middleweight division, and Bobby Knuckles' competition has just jumped up pretty significantly of late. Uh, I could see this as, you know, especially you look at their differences in age and some of the differences in experience. It seems like might be UR Romero's last shot, Bobby Knuckles, you know, he could lose this one and still come back and, and come back strong and make a play for the title. Uh, I mean, who do you give the edge to in this one? Even Because it just seems like one of those fights where I can make a strong case either way. Yeah, well, you know, it would certainly be huge for Robert Whitaker if he wins this fight over Yoel Romero to be, I believe, his eighth win in a row and become the 185-pound champion at 26 years old. Uh, it would, If that were to happen, especially if it were a highlight reel knockout or a stoppage of any kind, I think you would have the almost like the anointment of a new star in this in this division. Uh, at the same time, though, it's just a really interesting matchup of styles because clearly Yoel Romero has that wrestling background, which is nearly peerless in this division. And yet at the same time, he has this very unorthodox, almost lackadaisical style where he goes out there and, you know, for a minute on end or so, it doesn't seem like he's doing that much. And in fact, Early in his UFC career, it gave the impression sometimes when he was out there, you would look at him and be like, does he even like really know what he's doing right now? Or is he just sort of feeling his way? And then he will have these uh, unbelievable explosions of violence where he knocks Chris Weidman's head into the to the fourth or fifth row with the flying knee. So and then you got Robert Whitaker, who's, uh, you know, can be a very aggressive and technical striker. So is Robert Whitaker going to be able to capitalize on those somewhat slow moments of Yoel Romero or is Yoel Romero going to use his, his wrestling to to take the striker off his feet or will Romero be able to do some kind of hyper athletic insane thing to Whitaker I don't know but like you put those two guys in the cage and I think that you run a very high risk of it being exciting and and uh it's probably the most anticipated fight for me still left on this fight card yeah well and you give them five rounds to work with Maybe you or Romero can afford to dick around a little bit more and just look for that one opportunity to, to jump down out of the stratosphere and, and crush Bobby Knuckles' head. But does that work against Robert Whitaker, though? Like, are, if you're, if you're Yoel Romero and you go out there with a, a game plan that you might pace yourself and, 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 you know, try to make sure you got five rounds in the tank, uh, everybody's got that plan until Bobby Knuckles punches him in the face, right? Because that, that's what he's going to go out there and try to do, you would think. True. He is Bobby Knuckles, after all. And I'm glad everybody's finally embraced the nickname. Got to live up to the moniker. Let's spend a couple minutes left in this round. Let's jump ahead. Winner of this fight versus Michael Bisping. I guess that's got to happen. If you put an interim title around somebody's waist at the end of this, uh, at the end of this fight. But at the same time, Bisping has gone back and forth about whether or not he wants to fight Yoel Romero, whether or not he considers Yoel Romero to be a cheater, uh, whether or not Bisping himself is injured or whether or not we're going to move forward with this George St. Pierre versus Michael Bisping fight, since uh, the UFC seems to think the winner of Romero versus Whitaker will fight Bisping. George St. Pierre has indicated 
he still wants to fight Bisping. In a way, it's sort of business as usual because everybody still wants to fight Mike Bisping. <laughs> Who would you rather see uh, against Michael Bisping, Yo Romero or Bobby Knuckles? I mean, either of those fights would be tremendous. It's hard not to say Yoel Romero just because of the beef. I love you, Mike. <laughs> that's pretty good, actually. I see you soon, boy. That's, a, that's a, not a bad Yoel Romero you've got there. Uh, it would, you know, the match, the clash of styles, the bad blood, the two sort of cagey older dudes going out there to settle it for the title. That would be incredible, but I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't look down my nose at Robert Whitaker versus Michael Bisping either, because then you got the exact opposite thing. You got the young lion coming to take Michael Bisping's crown if he can. Yeah. And you got to think either one of them would probably end up as the betting favorite against Michael Bisping. Uh, I just looked at the odds on this one. You want to guess what they look like? I'm going to guess that Yoel Romero is minus 150. Uh, you are incorrect. Basically, across the board, it's Robert Whitaker as a small favorite. Really? Around minus 130 or so. What what can you get on Yoel Romero? What numbers can uh, you get on Yoel Romero? Plus 110. You can get plus money on Yoel Romero? Slightly. Boy, if I had $20 I never wanted to see again, I tell you what, it would be hard to pass that up. Despite the fact that I think that this is kind of a pick em. Yeah, I agree. Those betting tips, by the way, are for entertainment purposes only. And they're they're not even tips, they're not, really. They're not even tips. So Nigel Longstock is here. We're going to play a little Master Three Theater, and that starts right now. It's that time again. We welcome back friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Good day to you, sir. That's all you had to say for yourself? Well, you did not ask, sir. But I'm hyperallergic, in case you're wondering. <laughs> I was. Well, no, I can look at you. Pretty good guess there. Um, it's been a while. I assume you've been just storing up wonderful tweets? Indeed, sir, I have, and I have organized them into a theme. Oh, good. And what is that theme? Well, it's one of those 60% compliance themes. So it's one of your themes, yes, is what you're saying. Yeah, okay. And yet, yet it is incredibly broad. The theme is public relations. Which just could mean absolutely anything. Like, the, the act of tweeting something could fall under public relations. I see no way for you to screw this up, and therefore I'm very excited about seeing how you screwed it up. Indeed, sir. I am an ingenious man. <clears throat> I guess... We'll just have to take your word for it until further evidence presents itself. Yes, indeed. Let us begin. This episode of Master Tweet Theater is brought to you by the Emoji Movie, the film for people who have given up. Do you wake each morning and stare at your decaying body, aware you must die but utterly indifferent to that fact? You'll probably go to the Emoji Movie, the grim exercise we didn't even title. Force your family to fall silent and look away from you for a little while with the Emoji Movie. Or walk numbly into the sea. Whatever. Man, just going to see the Emoji Movie with a good pack of cowboy astronaut cigarettes sounds like a pretty good Saturday afternoon to me. Get in for those matinee prices? Yeah. I'm just jealous because they didn't cast me as the poop. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the first. Haters will always gonna hate. Just so I make sure I didn't hear that wrong, that was haters will always gonna hate? Yes, the old saying, haters will always gonna hate. Jessica I. 
That is a very Jessica I style tweet. Uh, boy, that could really be anyone. I'm going to go with. Josh Barnett. Both fine guesses. You were close with anyone, but it is Claudia Galdea. Galdea. Performing some public relations? Indeed. Advising us on how public relations work. These are sort of meta tweets. Not public relation in action, but the wisdom of public relators. Okay. Public relators will gonna relate. Indeed, sir. Tweet the second. The moment a man calls you cock guy and that I have too much cock, I don't know if it's an insult or compliment at UFC. Uh, Alistair Overeem. That does sound like it would, it would be Alistair Overeem, doesn't it? Um, Alistair Overeem. It is Alistair Overeem having too much cock and being a cock guy. You don't remember this when Fabrizio Verdum, in an attempt to criticize Alistair Overeem, referred to him as, as a cock no, guy? I do, I do. But is this a new tweet? Did he just respond to this? Has he been thinking this over? I mean, I th- it's safe to assume that he has never stopped thinking about it. <laughs> there you go. His, his response did seem to be delayed, however, by several days. <laughs> thinking of a repost, if you will. <clears throat> tweet the third. Oh, dear. Technical difficulties. Tweet the third. Trolls are the best slash worst, just saying. God bless you all. So this is public relations again. Indeed, sir. Advising us on how to think about trolls. They're the worst and the best, just just saying. God bless you all. Mm. Chad, you got anything here? Uh, I mean, this sounds like it could be either of the Randy Couture's, kind of. Like, oh, no, they take a high road. Well, that's kind of what this is, right? Like responding to trolls and yet sort of like staking out some middle ground. Uh, they, would, they would have like a quote, like a quote about trolls contribute, attributed to Confucius or something. I mean, I'd, I'd, maybe. Uh, I'm going to go the other Randy Couture, Rich Franklin. I'm going to say Chris Levin for no good reason at all, but this is another one that could be absolutely anybody in MMA. Both fine guesses, both anybody in MMA and both wrong. It is Kendall Grove. Why do you love Kendall Grove tweets so much? Well, because they're so poorly written, sir. They, I really like this one. You know, he starts out saying trolls are the best, but then he, he hedges it, and then he just ends with blessing everyone who's reading. Playing it safe. <laughs> Public relations. Indeed, sir. Tweet the fourth. Out in the street, they call it hashtag murder. <laughs> You you included that one just so you could just really play it up, huh? <laughs> I find you guilty of the crime of murder. <laughs> Joe Benavides. That's a good guess. Henan uh, Burrell. Both fine guesses, both up on street lingo, but both wrong. It is Platinum Mike Perry. Okay, that makes sense. Just out there free associating on Twitter and... I hope these are rap lyrics. They, yeah. They oh, are, they are? Yeah. Oh, thank God. Who is, is this future? Two chains? Little Pony? <laughs> that new Little Pony mixtape. This is hot fire. It is. It's fire emoji. Little Pony keeps it 100. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. Whew. All the hard work is done. Now all I gotta do is get skinny and punch a bitch. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. See, the problem here is that we don't know if this is a recent tweet. That's right. Because it's been a while for Sir Nigel. I'm going to say that it's not that recent and it's Felice Herrig. Okay. That's a good guess. Um, I was going to go even further off the, the path here and say Heather Hardy, perhaps? Oh, okay. Mm, deep cut. Both fine guesses. Both like to punch a bitch, but both wrong again. It is Angela Hill. Oh, Angie Overkill. Yeah, Angela Hill does have one of the pound for pound best Twitter accounts out there. As far as I'm concerned, her Twitter is Angela Thrill at Twitter.com. Is this you doing public relations now? This is, I'm doing it for all of us, sir. Okay. Well, I guess that does it for Master Tweet Theater. What else you got going on, Sir Nigel? Well, it's funny you should ask, sir. I just finished work on an exciting project about a baby who displays all the behaviors of an adult businessman and also robs banks. I see. What's it called? It's called Boss Baby Driver. And what role do you play? I play a subordinate baby driver. (laughs) That was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Well, Ben, the main event at UFC 213 between Valentina Shevchenko and the champion Amanda Nunes will sort of be the first women's bantamweight championship fight that has nothing to do with the three women that you might call the big three of the 135-pound division. Because previous to this, obviously, you had Ronda Rousey's lengthy run with the title. She lost to Holly Holm. Then Holly Holm lost to Misha Tate. Amanda Nunes beat Misha Tate to win the title uh, and then defended it against Ronda Rousey at UFC 207. Now she approaches this title defense against Valentina Shevchenko, which is itself a rematch. But here you have a fight that has has nothing to do with the three big-time promotable entities in this division, Rousey, Holm, and Tate. And that leads me to wonder uh, not only what kind of business will this do on pay-per-view, but... uh, what kind of a splash will it make in, in MMA circles? Are we willing to accept the new kids, I guess, uh, as the standard bearers in this division? And, and how successful will they ultimately be? You know, I think, obviously, you're not going to do Ronda Rousey numbers. You can kind of forget about that. Uh, but I think that there's a good possibility that a lot of people are going to get on board the Amanda Nunes train if it keeps on rolling. That said... I don't know if this fight will be the one that you can really stake a prediction about the future off of because, like you said, it is a rematch. It's kind of hard to to get to that next level of media hype with this one. Um, at, but I still think Amanda Nunes could be a really promotable champion. I mean, she's a lot of fun. She has a fun style to watch. Uh, she has interesting stuff to say uh, when you get her on camera. Um, she's not afraid to to get all up in someone's face and start a little beef. All those elements are there. You know, I think you can really work with it. But I think seeing Noon's Shevchenko 2 wasn't really that high on anyone's wish list. Yeah, this might have been one you wanted to call Bitter Rivals or Bad Blood, right? There you go, yeah. Uh, I've been a little bit surprised that the UFC hasn't done more with Amanda Nunes. She's been, she's been out in the public eye a little bit, obviously. And then leading up to this event, they sent her to the, you know, media lunch event with Donald Cerrone and all that stuff. But 359 days now as champion, already the second longest 
women's bantamweight championship reign since the UFC brought Rousey in and, and gave her the title. Five straight wins, uh, one of which is already over Valentina Shevchenko at UFC 196. I agree with you. I feel like just because of the fighting style and the personality, Amanda Nunes could be, uh, you know, a, a, a decent star for the UFC and a somewhat promotable entity. Uh, and I just haven't felt it leading up to this fight, I think, because of the extenuating circumstances that you mentioned. But at the same time, I feel like I'm a little bit surprised that that the mechanisms haven't been in place to kind of get her out there a little bit more. Um, Valentina Shevchenko, I think, a little bit more of a of a wild card here as the uh, as the challenger. She's got back to back wins over Holly Holm and Juliana Pena, but at the same time, uh, I think most people who are going to be interested in it in this fight remember that loss to Amanda Nunes, uh, which was just in March of last year, and so. Uh, I don't know. I, I just get the feeling that, like, even though we kind of know what to expect of, Val- of Valentina Shevchenko, it will be a surprise, and we won't necessarily know what to do with it if she wins the title here. Yeah, I think the the narrative coming out of it, if she wins the title, will be well, everybody's going to get a chance. You stick around in the women's bantamweight division long enough now, in the kind of the post Ronda Rousey era, uh, where it was one dominant figure that, for a long time. This time, you know. Wait in line and you'll get uh, your chance to have a cup of coffee with the belt. Uh, that's, you know, we've seen that go around in other divisions at times and it's not always a great thing. You know, you want to find that right balance between, you know, how you can have a dominant champion and people get excited about it, but then they also, uh, might get bored of it at a certain time if it never seems any chance that that person's going to lose. Uh, but if you start to get it where the belt just gets passed around, um, it gets harder to build up something behind one champion like you're going to have to do. Uh, if you're ever going to motivate any major pay-per-view buys without one of those big stars like Ronda Rousey. Have you seen the video online of Valentina Shevchenko's coach uh, whipping his gun out and shooting at the uh, at the robbers that come in to try to... Uh, There's a video of that? Yeah, it's on the, you can find it online. It's, it's, uh, it's not an American video, but I think TMZ has it of... Uh, him pulling out and throwing down with these what? guys in their motorcycle helmets. And then he gets shot himself. Uh, and Valentina Shevchenko is on the scene. It's, uh, it's crazy. It's pretty crazy. You put that together with the, uh, Glock tattoo and the, uh, the bullet tattoos on Valentina Shevchenko's stomach. And the fact that she, she's a competition shooter, correct? Like she, like she's way into it. Wait, what I'm hearing you say is that she is really about that life. This is not just a, a marketing gimmick for her. I mean, she seems to be both a firearms enthusiast and has been uh, on the scene of at least one shootout that we know of. So, Who was the other fighter who was trying to be the bullet? Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. We had this conversation. I can't remember who it was. Somebody else was trying to have their nickname be the bullet. I feel like right now, if there has to be one... She's got a pretty ironclad case there's, for being the bullet. There's nobody who has the bona fides of being the bullet like Valentina Shevchenko. She's, I mean, there's a video on the internet of her coach in a literal shootout, man. <laughs> a shootout in like a pizza parlor or something. Man, we must go to different pizza parlors. We, just, we run in different circles. That's that true. That is true. That is true. Uh, what do you think happens here? Valentina Shevchenko gonna gonna I would a pull what I assume would be an upset considering she just lost at UFC one ninety six to Amanda Nunes or uh is it and still at the end of this thing? You know, I know Amanda Nunes faded pretty hard in this fight uh, the first time, but I still think that 
Amanda Nunes has gotten much, much better as a fighter. Uh, Shevchenko, I mean, she's made some improvements too, uh, but I think that as far as who is more different, who has grown more since the first fight, I got to give it to Amanda Nunes. After the, yeah, I agree with you. After this, obviously, you you potentially have Holly Holm waiting in the wings. She's kind of uh, able to choose her destiny now, I guess you could say, at either 135 or 145. Uh, I saw today a headline saying it was either Holly Holm or her management saying that she would be open to fight for either of those titles at 135 or 145, to which I responded, you think? <laughs> so you got Holly Holm at number two, Juliana Pena. We still got Ronda Rousey on these... Uh, on these bantamweight rankings. How long are we going to keep doing that? It feels wishful more than anything else. <laughs> and then you got Raquel Pennington, Sarah McMahon, Kat Zingano rounding out the top seven. Kind of a usual suspects list of uh, women at 135 pounds. But uh, it seems to me like maybe one of the things that could inhibit Amanda Nunes becoming that promotable entity is just sort of like, you feel like you, in some ways, have this recycled list of of contenders. Even though uh, a matchup with Holly Holm would be a fresh one, and and probably the 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 most promotable thing you could do moving forward in the immediate. Maybe you keep Ronda Rousey on those rankings the same way, like you know, I, I make a list of of jobs I would accept, and you know, CEO. Is one is on there? Sure, that you could know? still happen. Yeah, the phone could ring at any time. That's uh, first baseman for the New York Yankees. Yep, maybe miss the the boat on that one. But hey, it's on the list. It's on. I'll just I'm putting it out there. I'm available. That's all I'm saying. You are. Yeah, you are available for that. Let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, ben, part of the lengthy sit down that Dana White did with your own John Morgan over there at MMA Junkie. Uh, that caught my eye this week is his quote about Cyborg. And as you know, and as I assume the people who listen to this podcast know, uh, not the sunniest relationship there between don't say. Dana White and uh, uh, Christian Cyborg Justino. Here's his quote, though. I want to read this. We signed Cyborg, White said. We made a commitment to Cyborg. Not everything is easy. Not everything is as fun as other divisions or whatever. But we made a commitment to this woman, and she's had a rough go here in the UFC. She hasn't been thrilled with things that have been said, things that have been done. And to be honest with you, we've made some mistakes when it comes to Cyborg. The least we could do is to get our shit together and get this woman a fight for the title. So I guess this week, I'm just saying, who is this dude and what has he done with Dana White? <laughs> is this a Dana White impersonator and Dana White is tied up in a closet somewhere? Because this is a whole new approach here. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad... I'm just saying, did you hear your boy Nick Diaz is in some trouble? Sigh. Ran afoul of the USADA whereabouts policy. Uh, apparently, the way it works is you got to let them know your whereabouts and actually be where you say you are. And if you miss it up uh, three times in one 12-year period then or 12-month period, then that counts as a failure, which Nick Diaz, I believe, is the first person to get popped under this whereabouts failure rule. That's not even a fair rule, though, for the Diaz brothers. No, there should be a Diaz version of the rule. An exemption. An right. exclusion. Right. Um, like, yeah, you where you call him up and you're like, hey, we want to test you. Why aren't you at your house where you said you were going to be? And he turns out he's, you know, on a bike somewhere. You, The follow-up question should have to be, are you high right now? And if he is, then, you know, cut him some slack. Uh, wait three days or something, and then eventually he'll get around to it. But that's not what I'm just saying. What I'm just saying, Chad, is 
the minute I heard that this, you know, it was Nick Diaz who had gotten popped under the whereabouts policy, I was not surprised, motherfuckers, you might say. But I was surprised that this has never happened before. You're telling me all these fighters, you got hundreds of fighters on there, and this is the first time in the USADA era that somebody has messed up that thing enough uh, for it to count as a failure? Because that is shocking to me. The fact that it was Nick Diaz, less shocking to me. Yeah, the I'm Diaz brothers should get six. Yeah, that's Six fair. missed appointments. Right. Just saying. You know what else is weird? Nick Diaz has not fought anybody in the UFC since January of 2015, when obviously he fought Anderson Silva and uh, 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 tested positive in the wake of that, correct, for for some metab- metaboloid, metabolizabida, some kind of chemical, marijuana chemical. Anti-doping scientist Chad Dundas. We're more than two years after that. And we still got to know where this dude is at all times. Just seems weird to me. Does seem weird. I guess I'm just saying. That's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you would like to air to the podcast before our next show, which will be on Tuesday, obviously go to the website, comainevent.com, and you can take care of that there. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So what do you say we go out back getting that inflatable pool? Did I tell you there's a lounge area in that pool? You mentioned it. It has you, an inflatable seat, which was advertised on the box as a quote-unquote lounge area. You seem really excited about this. Well, I mean, there are a few people in this world that like lounging more than I do. That's, that's a fact. There's drink holders in this inflatable pool. Now you're speaking my language. Which beer can Yeah.